0: You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot,
1: and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Klobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James
2: Bobo-Pay.
1: Good evening, Cliff. Good evening, Bobo. How are you doing? Good. How's it going with you, bud? It's going all right, man, going all right. Just like I've uh, been waist deep in paperwork all day, trying to clean up the mess I left for myself with, you know, taxes and receipts and stuff, you know, started a museum this past year so, <laughs> and I wasn't on top of my organization like I often am. So kind of cleaning up my own mess. I got a little taste of what it's like to be you, I think.
2: I'm so far behind. That's do like yeah. last year's and this year's. Oh, see, I'm not, I'm not that far behind yet.
1: <laughs> Give me another year. Give me another year. I'll be there. <laughs> right. It's been a couple of weeks since we've spoken. I mean, we we recorded the Moneymaker interview, which is a lot of fun. And it seems that people have been really enjoying that out there. Um, but that was a couple of weeks ago. You know, we recorded Matt one night and then used it for two weeks in a row. You've had a gig since then. We've both been on the road doing some stuff. Um, where did you go and how did that turn out? I
2: went to Stars Rock, Illinois, which is about an hour, 20 minutes west of Chicago. It was a real small event. They only had there's only only 40 seats available for the Bigfoot section. I was meeting another guy named Jay with the Bigfoot guys. Um, there was a beautiful lodge, man. Starved Rock has one of those CCC you know the park lodges they built in the for the park services. Yeah. Yeah. So the lodge was really nice, old historic, beautiful lodge, and people were really cool. So yeah, it was a it was a good time. It was. I never saw the sun. It was just gray the whole like four or five days I was there. It was a gig, you know, and met some cool people and had a good time. It's always a good time when you go to Chicago.
1: Actually, it's not always a good time when I go to Chicago. Thinking about it, remember it was, last time I was in Chicago was when we flew back from Nepal. Do you remember that, Bubs? You saved my life. Oh yeah, you were sick. Yeah, yeah, like, like, yeah, like I think I think you might have actually literally saved my life. Um, right. And God knows how many times that happened. Yeah, very briefly, like we flew back from Nepal and we were going to have a couple days in Chicago to kind of reacclimate, you know, to the time zone, you know, so we don't get the emotional bends, I suppose. And um, we, we were landed in Chicago and everybody everybody's stoked. Everyone's going to go out and like have some beers to go see the town. And I'd never been to Chicago. I was pretty excited about it. Um, and in the morning I woke up. It's OK. I'm going to go do my laundry. And then there was no room for me in the car. And Bobo, being the gentleman he is, offered to do my laundry for me. So I passed him off my laundry bag around 1130 or noon in the lobby, and I went back up to my room. And within an hour, I was sicker than I've ever been I, – that I can remember. I was horrible. just And I would wake up – I would black out in the middle of the day, and um, it was something I ate. I got food sicknesses or f- food food poisoning. As some sort um, on Qatar Airlines. Thanks, Qatar Airlines. But anyway, yeah. Um, the the rest of the day was spent in this blurry blackness that I can I don't even remember very clearly. All I know is that every once in a while I would wake up having passed out. Sometimes I was on my bed. Sometimes I was curled up on the ground next to the toilet. Sometimes I was somewhere in between and my shades were drawn. I had no idea what time it was. I didn't know who I was. I was delirious and hallucinating. And then like at seven o'clock or something, there's a knock on my door. I go to the door and it's Bob's with my laundry. And, and um, I open the door and he goes, hey, Cliff, here's your dude. You look terrible. And I think I just I might have started crying or something. I don't even know. I mean, and he goes, dude, stay here and like you left and disappeared and came back with Gatorade and some noodles and and uh as far as I can tell, I think you might have saved my life that day. I don't think I've ever been so sick. It was terrible. and I totally missed out on Chicago.
2: one of the big discovery offices there's Silver Springs, Maryland, New York, Chicago, and now l a also at that point, Chicago is our westernmost office, so they had some fun people in their discovery offices there that would take us out on the town when we were there.
1: Well, I didn't get to do any of it. I totally missed it. I got to do Squatch Fest at the end of uh, January. Uh, Squatch Fest was a good time. And we also piggybacked a Meldrum event on that, too. Uh, so Meldrum was in town. He did another event at the museum on Thursday night. One of those like small ticketed events, only 40 people yeah. maximum. And then, um, so yeah, so he did that. He did a a Q and a with the crowd and everything that was there at the pizza place and had some, well, he didn't have any beers, but the rest of us had a couple beers. Um, and then the next day we drove up the Squatch Fest, which is a really cool Bigfoot festival in, uh, Kelso and Longview, Washington about an hour north of portland where i live outside of portland of course and uh it was it was a great time man the olympic project guys were there the mountain monster guys showed up a couple of those guys were there and yeah meldrum spoke i i spoke uh gimlin was there it was great man yeah i had a, had a good time a lot of familiar faces you know i think this is right. the third or fourth year in a row that had been going on i've been privileged enough to lucky enough to be invited every single one uh, but I I love the gig, you know, because it's such a good time, good people. And, of course, everybody loves to play a home game. And so whenever I can drive to a conference, I consider it a home game. Well, Bobo, I, as, as fascinating as I find ourselves, uh, we're not the subject of this podcast. We actually have a guest on this evening. You were kind enough to line up a good friend of ours to come back for seconds. We've had this gentleman on before he spoke about um, that kid who was, you know, with off by the bear who helped them survive or whatever. But now we've uh, brought him back on to talk about a variety of other subjects. So why don't we just bring him on and we'll get down to business here for the second time since we've started this podcast. Welcome back,
2: Matt Pruitt. Yeah, I actually went with Matt. I spent a week with him out in Tennessee and man, I, I learned a lot. He's involved in some, you know, some of the, the real research going on right now, like, yeah, you know, there's there's a couple of groups that I'm impressed with, and he's part of the NAWAC, and he opened my eyes, so I wanted to get him back on to talk about some of the stuff he was telling me about what those guys have going on down there.
1: So Pruitt, then NAWAC, what you know was formerly the Texas group, basically how I always identified them, but they're not based in Texas. They've kind of branched out. Um, they are now the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Answer this for the for the listeners. I know the answer already. Does proving a species
0: necessitate killing one? Species validation and verification and recognition has always been predicated by the collection of a specimen. That's always been the first step. And especially with something as novel and as strange as this, it seems to be even more necessary. Because we're making this fundamental axiomatic claim that there is a biological species behind the legend or the mythos of Sasquatch or Bigfoot. And not only that, but we're making this fundamental claim that it's this large, higher primate. And not only that, we're making the claim that it occurs in North America among us here in the United States and Canada. And so all of those things combine to make something extremely novel and extremely unique. And so it it almost raises the bar even above, let's say, if you had the claim of, of a new species of squirrel or, you know, some other known accepted animal, then, yeah, you probably could influence protection and legislation and recognition via some other supplementary evidence. But with something like this, the challenge has always been, show me the body. And that's something that no one's really ever tried to do in a concerted, organized manner in the history of the subject. The way that I frame it with people is like, science has laid the rules for long before this subject existed as to what qualifies a species to be officially listed and recognized. And so if you want to play this game, you're going to have to play by the rules. Now, certainly you could make the case that it would be a worthwhile endeavor to try to locate the remains of an individual that's died of natural causes, but the odds of that are so very low. And so it just happens to be that the most direct and expedient way to collect the largest amount of biological evidence is to dispatch a living animal and to collect it in its entirety. And so I didn't make the rules, but I'm willing to play by those rules don't take my pointed
1: questions as being antagonistic at all, Matt, please don't because, uh, well, first of all, you're my good friend. I want to put that out there. Um, and, but I am approaching this as I think a lot of our listeners might, I know the rules I, as you, as you put it, I know that this question will never be answered until a dead one comes in, it's naive. It's completely naive to think otherwise. Even good DNA evidence. And I've had this conversation with Dr. Todd Dissatel as well. Uh, Todd was suggesting that, you know, repeated video in combination with repeated footprints, in combination with repeated DNA samples from one specific area from the same individual, might be enough to prove the species. But even then, I think that a specimen would have to be taken, period. Um, even with all that nice big body of evidence, you're still going to need a real body uh, for evidence. It's ugly, it's but it's true. Um, and as you said, nobody alive today wrote the rules. There is no other way around it. So any Bigfooter out there who's listening, who fancies that he or she will help prove the species, unless you're helping kill one, you're fooling yourself. And that's ugly, but it's true. So uh, this is a, a frank, honest discussion about the reality that we are facing.
0: You know, value is something that's shared interpersonally between people who agree on value. It's like if you took something, say, an incredibly expensive antique or artifact, you couldn't take that apart at a molecular level and identify the value. The value occurs between yourself and other individuals who have enough of the knowledge and information related to that object to assign a value to it. So uh, the analogy I use, as silly as it might be, would be that you know I don't collect stamps. I don't know anyone who does collect stamps, but I do know that people exist who do collect stamps and that some of them spend incredible amounts of money for that somebody might see a stamp and say, I'd be willing to give $5,000 for that. Because when they, I mean, we all have this intermediary framework between ourselves and the objective material world. You could think of it like a lens that you look through and it's entirely predicated on your knowledge, your understanding, your experiences, et cetera. So whereas another person might see a stamp and they understand how rare that stamp was and the printing process that gave rise to it and the artist that created it and how few were circulated, I just see a piece of paper. I see a useless piece of paper that I wouldn't pay more than 25 cents for, right? We're looking at- I feel
1: the same way about money, oddly enough,
0: yeah. We're looking at the same objective object through entirely different lenses. If you want to engage in the kind of um, interactions that produce progress in how this subject is viewed by the general public, you have to occupy a space of shared value. Now, again, people can establish that among each other, just like the stamp collectors establish the value of stamps among each other, but to the rest of us, we don't care. That's kind of how I would hope people would start to view things like stick structures and like divots in the ground that are roughly foot-shaped or this whole host of other things that get propagated, especially with the advent of the internet, as being representative of the reality of these animals. of of Sasquatches, and who I've seen get viscerally angry, uh, go into like abject rage when that value isn't shared by another person that they, you know, whether they're searching for validation or verification, or if they're reaching out to a person that they feel to be authoritative, et cetera. So if you start to move into the realm of science and academia and the government and those institutions, well, then it's very restricted, the things that they will find valuable As representative of the physical reality of these things. And they're not stories and they're not stick structures. You know, there's a whole host of things that they're not, and there are very few things that they are. And again, it just seems that the most valuable thing among that hierarchy of people would be a body. And, you know, the whole point of this, too, is that there are much more qualified people who should be looking at this and who aren't. And there's a lot of reasons that they aren't looking at this. A lot of that has to do with. The existing paradigm at the time that the subject became mainstream just didn't allow for something like this. In today's world, we have a much broader understanding of human evolution, pre-human ancestry, and uh, a greater understanding of even the known, the living extant great ages that allows all this information to make a lot more sense and have a lot more correlatives in the real world. But another reason that qualified scientists aren't looking at this is because of the amount of noise being made by amateurs and enthusiasts. Again, I consider myself an amateur and an enthusiast because I'm not a scientist, but the amount of noise that's being made over things that really don't have any of that shared value drives them farther and farther away. So again, collect all of the stick structure photographs and data that you like, document every bump in the night that you like, but understand that that's only gonna have value to you or a very small group of people. And if you elect to participate in this interaction that produces progress and understanding in order to have these things officially listed and recognized, then you have to understand that you're playing a different game and you have to be willing to play by those rules. If you're if you're someone who's doing this for your own enjoyment, you're going to have the most fun. If you're doing it for the sake of progress, it's not very fun. It's incredibly arduous and incredibly frustrating. And it feels like you get a lot more failures than you do victories. I mean, in terms of the overall subject, We've not yet had a victory on that front because these things are still buried within the realm of the unknown and still entangled with the mythology is looming a lot larger than the biology at this point, even after six decades.
1: Well, as Krantz pointed out in his excellent book, um, they're under no obligation at all to even look at the information because why would they? It doesn't exist. Doesn't matter. There's no obligation there. Just like I'm, in, I'm under no obligation to look at footprints supposedly
0: made by uh, leprechauns. That's true across the board. I mean, the onus is on us. You know, again, like uh, I'm making a fundamental axiomatic claim that there are real, living, breathing, corporeal, flesh and blood apes. That are responsible for the legend or the mythology of Bigfoot, and so I, I have to be the one who supports that claim rather than expecting people to come to me and come to my way of thinking and my way of of understanding to arrive at that conclusion themselves. Now, some people want to engage in that, so certainly you know we have discussions like this that people listen in on, or I give talks to the public, et cetera. But certainly, yeah, no one's under any obligation to look at it that way, and so that's a harsh reality
1: it's a really harsh reality for people. Cause I mean, I think that uh, I don't know about you guys, but I suspect this is probably true for you. Um, at various points in my 25 plus years of doing this, I've kind of lost myself a little bit in some of it. And, um, I forget I'm the fish forgetting about the fact that I'm swimming in the ocean, you know, I just kind of lose perspective on some stuff. Um, and it, it, I imagine some people listening are prob- might be lost as well and may not even understand that. But it's a harsh reality to find that like what we think may not be important to everybody, you know, because um, we are egocentric little monsters as human beings. So uh, I, I think a lot of what you're saying is totally ringing true as harsh a reality as it is. Uh, it, and I think that would be true for everyone if you really sat back or stood back and, and listened and looked closely at your own beliefs and questioned them. I wish people would be a little bit more content with the satisfied with their own work and what they're doing and would need less validation because that gets me into a lot of trouble because my, my problem is that I'm honest and I'm going to tell people what I really think. When I'm nice about it, I say, well, gosh, you know, the Patterson Gimlin film set the bar really high very early on. So if you got to point out where it is in the picture, it's not good enough, which is true. But. I'm sure both of you guys get this all the time as well. But when people say, well, don't you see it? It's right there. I become. I just want you to see it. But what they're basically doing is looking for validation. Uh, they want, you know, this this Bigfooter that they respect. And I appreciate that. Don't get me wrong, please. But they want this Bigfooter, whether it's me or Bobo or Matt or whoever, um, that they respect to say, yes, that's a Bigfoot. I can see it. But 98 times out of 100, it's just not like that.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a need for validation. And again, I I think it relieves the burden to to make that acceptance that it won't necessarily have the same value. And it definitely does for me. I mean, I, I think one thing, if anybody knows me in all these years that I've been involved, like what have I ever released? What have I ever put forth? You know, I've never collected anything that I felt stood up to the standards set by the best evidence collected thus far. You know, the tracks that I've seen and documented in the field Certainly aren't as clean and crisp and clear as detailed as other ones. So there's no need in me trying to force those upon people. You know, sounds that I've recorded, thermal blips that I've recorded, various things, none of those would stand up to scrutiny. So there's just no point in even trying to release and defend them as such. I just collect it as data, and then I understand that this might be indicative of potentially, you know, that I'm in the right place in the right time. And if I put in more time and effort, maybe I can get something better. And I think that's very freeing. You know, I don't spend my time defending old images or or defending stuff, you know, that I've put out a long time ago. And that's OK. That's the other thing, too, is I think people feel the need like they're in some big race and that they're trying to accumulate, quote unquote, evidence. And so every picture, every sound clip, every track find, every stick structure that they can put in that that piggy bank and say, look, look how full my bank is. This is the representation of my time and effort. I think that's the perception. And so I'm, I'm happy to say, Hey, look, I've been going in the field after these things since 2004. I've done it all over the country. Now in like 20 plus States in Canada. And here it is. It's been almost 16 years and I really don't have anything to show for it. And I'm okay with that because I have, uh, a whole lot of, you know, experiences. I have things that I've learned and it's honed my methodology because what I'm going after, especially now in the last four years, is like this ultimate evidence. Now I'm still going after again, photographs and video and trying to refine those methodologies, but like, I'm okay with not having a gallery online of things that I'm attributing to these things. And that's fine with me. I think that's a big Part of this issue is that people think that they won't be taken seriously as someone who makes an effort if they don't have some catalog of things to show for it. And that's just simply not the case. One thing that I learned really early on that I've tried to stick to the best I can is to represent the subject to the absolute best of my abilities. Most of the time when people talk to me about this subject, they do not care about me. They want to hear about the subject. And so in every single one of those interactions, I'm like a microcosm of the whole subject. I represent all of it, all the witnesses, all the researchers that have come before us, the scholars who have uh, you know, put in time and effort and energy and, and risked their good names on this. And so I have to do everything that I can to demonstrate that this is a valid pursuit and that enough data exists to justify that pursuit, or at least that I can demonstrate why I can justify that pursuit in my own life. You know, because there are people who want to be personally validated. And so they do put forth a whole lot of substandard data that isn't convincing. Again, it it doesn't occupy that shared value structure of other people. And so they take those personal interactions and they go, you know what? This whole subject is hogwash. They hear fantastic claims. They see flimsy evidence. They see the red circle, blob squash, uh, you know, the tree that fell over naturally, the divot in the ground. And they say, yeah, that's what I thought. There's really nothing to this whole thing. And it's, that becomes like a barrier to entry for all the rest of the information. And so I think it is really important that if you're engaged in any kind of dialogue with the interested public, whether that's just friends who are interested in the subject or you know, if you are in a position to engage groups of people who are asking you to speak about it. Understand that, like, there's a heavy responsibility there because if you take this seriously and if you find value in it and if you're passionate about it, then you can influence the way that other people at least perceive that pursuit. And so, for me, like, I don't mind not having some big catalog of you know past efforts trying to defend every single thing as being indicative of the reality of Sasquatches because I feel like that oftentimes damages the subject. It doesn't contribute to it at all, and it actually hurts.
1: And I'm so glad you said that, actually. Uh, you said, you put it very, very eloquently, as usual, because like I said, uh, you well, maybe I didn't say that, but you are one of my best friends, and I, and my, for me at least, the most highly respected Bigfooters that I know. Um, if I've got an issue, I come to you. If I've got a thing um, I need some, uh, a different set of eyes on, I come to you. There's very few people um, on the front page of my Rolodex, and you happen to be one of them, and I respect the hell out of you for it, uh, if that, or many things, actually. But the fact that you brought up that, basically what you're saying is, anything you do in public in the realm of Sasquatch means that you are representing every single one of us. If you come out there with some jackass pronouncement about Bigfoots do, you know, they grow wings and they fly, whatever, they're, that reflects upon every single one of us. Um, whereas also, if you come out um, and you're, you're, you're uh, with a very sort of conservative, sober esque kind of a uh, perspective on the, the quality of evidence, et cetera. That also reflects on all of us. And um, too many people in this in this field uh, just shoot their mouth off about whatever harebrained thing they happen to think at that particular moment, even though it could change, and maybe they didn't think that a year ago, um, without weighing evidence and supporting their hypotheses. And that reflects on all of us as well. If you're, if you're talking in public, you need to put your best face on, man, because it's going to affect every single if – you're, if you're some asshole to somebody or if you're out there talking crap about somebody, if you're out there bickering amongst the rest of the community, if you're out there being a troll, if you're doing any of these unsavory, unattractive things, it reflects on all of us even the good people who perhaps aren't like that. So I'm so glad you brought that up. Just So glad that, that that is out there. And I'd like everybody out there listening to consider that. What you do in public, whether it's you're speaking on a stage or you're talking at the water cooler at work, it reflects upon all of us. So put your
0: best face forward, please. There's been a big void since the dawn of this subject because it was initially relegated to the fringe of the taboo. Qualified scientists refused to look at it. And so that leaves a void. And so what does that void get filled by? Well, it gets filled by amateurs. And again, I'm an amateur. I'm one of those people. But a lot of those amateurs that fill that void are highly emotionally motivated, not necessarily as intellectually motivated. They're more uh, motivated by the phenomenology of the subject, uh, which is something that has become more and more and more rampant these days. And so the majority of that commentary that exists comes from that. You know, one of the things that I've been so frustrated with, you know, I do take the position that these are some type of ape. You know, humans are apes as well. So I get tired of people thinking that some kind of denigrating term or that categorizes them in some lower uh, life form category, uh, which is just not the case. They're apes. We're apes. And I think the, the physical evidence and the observational evidence supports that. That's the fundamental claim that I'm making. And so to, to support that claim requires some diligence. And if you're making a claim about the biological or the zoological, then it helps to have explored some of those realms. You know what I mean? So the more that you understand the known apes, the more that you understand what we do understand about fossil hominids and pre-human ancestry, et cetera. And then the more you understand about other large charismatic megafauna, the two I think that are the most relevant non-primates are bears and especially tigers. The more that you understand these realms— the more correlatives you see in the Sasquatch world, those things from the Sasquatch data set, you can see point-to-point examples, of, again, correlatives, consistencies, and so it all frames it really nicely in that world. And it's taken me, I'm still engaged in this process of learning everything that I can. and My personal library grows all the time. There's a lot of books that I reread every year. The more I learn about other topics, the more I can revisit information that I might have touched Last year, five years, 10 years ago, and it makes sense to me. Again, I'm building that intermediary lens, that framework between myself and the facts to inform those facts. So it takes a hell of a lot of work and effort and learning and confronting a lot of data to come to that conclusion. And so what I'm met with very often are people that say, Oh, you think they're just apes? You're closed-minded. And I'll say, Okay, well, what do you know about apes? Oh, I don't, I don't need to read that stuff. I know they're not apes. And so I'm frustrated by that idea that I'm the one being closed minded because I I arrive at a position based on engaging a whole lot of information. And so other people don't engage any information and they arrive at a conclusion that very often will invoke the paranormal, the supernatural, the metaphysical, and they'll arrive at that conclusion. And if I'm not willing to immediately arrive at that point with them, then I must be being closed minded. But I, I just know that, well, if you learned these same things, and if you studied these same topics, then all of these things that seem strange or that seem supernatural metaphysical would make sense. They would, you could ground those again in the realm of biology. And one of the things I've learned through this process, too, is that we've been doing this with animals for as long as we've been around. And I mean, if you read the pre-discovery histories, again specifically of bears and tigers, some of the oldest uh, examples of human culture on the planet are examples of arctolatry or the worship of bears. And that's happening in Eurasia. That's happening in Japan with the Ainu people, um, like 70,000-year-old sites of bear worship. And then as oral tradition arises, and then later is is recorded we see that you know bears and tigers, Again, specifically I'm talking about Siberian tigers, both bears and tigers were seen as half human. Uh, they were the mediator between the physical world and the spiritual world. They could read a, a person's mind and know their thoughts. They could project fear or evil into their hearts, and on and on and on. The same kind of claims that people make about Bigfoot today, and it, it just so happens that there's a realm of experience that's called, you know, the phenomenological experience or literally like the experience of being. And so you can understand how people, especially archaic or primitive societies, would have brief, frightening encounters with large animals. The first encounter with the unknown and then they're imagining what that might be. I mean, that's we still do that today. When you encounter the unknown, you don't have anything to correlate that against. And so your mind starts generating fantasies in order to try to solve for what that is. And if you want to test that, like the next time you hear a bump in the night outside, go outside in the dark without a flashlight and see what your mind populates that darkness with. You know what I mean? That's what we do. And so people have been doing that with animals for as long as we've been interacting with them. I think that we live in a time and place now that we think that modern Western civilization is immune to that. But clearly we're not, because if you look at the host of Bigfoot claims, it's the same thing. Now, what happens is that we've updated the nomenclature. So instead of calling them, you know, like half-human demigods, now we're calling them, you know, hominid-human genetic hybrids. And instead of talking about, uh, you know, oh, they can know a man's thoughts, we call it telepathy or mind speak. And instead of saying, oh, they can project fear into a person uh, from a distance, now we've put that under infrasound. So all the nomenclature has been updated, but the ideas are still there. And again, there's a real phenomenological experience that contributes to that, but it doesn't have a one-to-one relationship with reality. Like if you read old texts, very often the description of the world is as such. We live on a disc, and the disc is inside a dome, and there's water above the dome, and there's water below the disc. When you think about, okay, well, these people weren't scientists. These were hundreds or sometimes thousands of years ago. But how do you experience the world? Kind of like that, right? I mean, that's a fairly good description of what it's like to experience the world. You can't typically see places uh, that give you enough visual distance to see the curvature of the Earth. So it probably feels like a disk. And it's in a dome because the sky kind of looks like that, right? And there's water above the dome. Well, I mean, it rains. So the water's got to be up there somewhere, Right. And springs come up out of the ground and rivers flow into the ground. So that's a pretty good phenomenological description of the world. Although now we understand that that does not have a one-to-one relationship with the objective material physical reality of the world. And the same is true of these descriptions of these animals in prehistory. In that they're describing experiences and encapsulating that in like oral tradition and narrative. And we're seeing that with the Sasquatch phenomenon now. It's just that again, people in modern times think that we're immune to that kind of thinking. And therefore, those experiences must be representative of a one-to-one relationship with reality. So they can cloak and they shape shift and they are interdimensional. Again, another updating of the nomenclature where tigers mediate between the physical world and the spiritual world. And now people say sasquatches are interdimensional. It's just a it makes it sound more sciencey and therefore it's more modern or palatable. But I think that, that the phenomenological aspects of encountering an unknown animal contribute to all that and are very normal, but are now being you know, proffered and held up as, no, this is what these things are. They, they're taking basically the elements of human experience and they're putting the onus on the animal itself and saying, this is what the animal is, this is what it does, when certainly no one thinks that anymore about bears or tigers or elephants or any host of animals.
1: You are one of the best red Bigfooters that I personally know. And I've always appreciated that about you. Uh, and some of our more recent conversations have circled around a couple books. Uh, you mentioned the Siberian tiger uh, recently. I know you just finished reading a book about that um, not too long ago, maybe in the last couple months. What were some of the things that stood out in that book that you drew a direct parallel with Sasquatches? I remember you mentioned something about game cams, for
0: example. Oh, certainly. Well, I'm always fascinated with other large animals especially those that don't occur on this continent because, you know, and I guess we should all be pretty grateful that we don't have tigers on this continent.
1: Uh, oh, thank because... God, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. know what? Dinosaurs too, for that matter. Um, if, if we, if, because dinosaurs still existing would fundamentally change the camping experience.
0: Oh, certainly. Well, tigers as well. It's funny. I, I worked with some people um, from Asia who hadn't been in America very long. And so when they found out that I like to camp a lot, they were like, oh, well, you better be careful of tigers. And so they were very relieved to find out, like, no, we don't have tigers here. No worries. But so, yeah, I spent a lot of time reading about other large, scary critters. I mean, Jim Corbett's writings about hunting man-eating tigers are some of the most riveting nature writings I've ever encountered. And he was the first conservationist to protect tigers in India as well. But, yeah, this book in particular, i would gotten on a kick of reading a lot about Siberian tigers in particular uh, because there there are correlatives and there are parallels. I mean, they're very large. Um, they have large home ranges. They're extremely furtive. You know, they're very, very stealthy. They're extremely difficult to see. And so, yeah, the book that I was most recently read uh, a few months back that I was I called you and I was like, oh, you've got to read this book. is called The Great Soul of Siberia. It's by a guy named uh, so Young Park. who's a Korean guy. And uh, the funny thing is he, he wasn't a scientist. He wasn't a biologist or, or uh, anything of that nature. I think he had a literature background, but then became a journalist, like a documentarian. So when he got involved with trying to study Siberian tigers in the wild, there was collectively less than one hour of footage of Siberian tigers in, in the wild, in their natural environment. And this gentleman over about 15 years, amassed a little over a thousand hours of footage and it was grueling and painstaking and, you know, took a lot of patience. So he wrote this book essentially about all of those experiences and what he saw and the behaviors. And it's a really beautifully written book too, because he he has kind of a poetic sense. uh, And so he really paints like beautiful pictures of the landscape and and it's a fantastic read. But So anyway, he, he touched on some things that You know, as I was reading, I was like, man, this is like reading a book about sasquatches. I mean, first of all, an animal that's so elusive and so hard to see. There was one particular female that they were interested in studying whose tracks had been seen for years in this region and no one had ever seen her. All the like previous field biologists trying to no one had ever laid eyes on this thing. Um, One of the other interesting things was that they did use game cameras in places. You know, you always hear. Uh, among the Bigfoot phenomenon about people putting game cameras out and how they seem to be avoided and and no one's gotten excellent game camera photos. And sometimes it seems like the cameras are messed with or disturbed, perturbed, and almost always typically from behind, which you think, oh, wow, what a convenient way to say you didn't end up with any pictures, right? So I was reading in this book, and, and he says, quote, to film tigers and ungulates, I've been installing cameras in the Surrey Forest for nearly 10 years. The tigers found 23 of the cameras I'd fastidiously hidden and destroyed them. I rubbed deer droppings on the small cameras, hoping to mask the metal scent, but they still managed to find and destroy nearly all of them. The act of destruction was never caught on tape, only the sound, because all of the cameras were attacked from behind. But so there's a lot of correlatives in that book, and especially even— Talking again about the Usuri people's beliefs associated with tigers, I mean, there's a whole host of things that are completely relevant, especially you know, if you're, if you're talking about, well, what does it take to pursue a rare animal with a large home range that is very difficult to see, let alone film, then read this book because this guy did it with tigers there. But he talks about like in one particular instance, he would very often be in these bunkers. He would dig and build these bunkers into the ground that were like four by four feet or four by six feet, very small. And he would stay in them for months at a time. And so all he has to do all day long is just look for tigers out of this little window. And so in uh, one of these particular long sessions, he was watching for a very extended time, didn't hear or see anything, had basically given up on the day. And there are these uh, large orange mushrooms that grow out there. And so he said he was scanning and scanning and listening and just absolutely nothing. And then finally, at one point, he's looking over and he's like, oh, there's a big, large mushroom I hadn't noticed before. (laughs) And so he zooms in on it, you know, with his camera and he realizes like that's the face of a tiger. And this whole time he'd been scanning the landscape for the things.
1: You know, that reminds me of a story that was told to me by an NAWAC member um who had spent a tremendous amount of time down in the bottom of area x or whatever and uh, this gentleman actually ended up seeing a sasquatch at one point but uh they didn't realize it while they were looking at the thing because they just wrote it off oh that must be so and so um i thought he was over to this direction but he's right there and then like the thing walks away and they realize wait a minute that isn't you know that was apparently a sasquatch that he had observed and he thought it was another person and only soon but later found out that it wasn't that person. So uh, it's funny that you know you look for something so long and when you see it, you may not even recognize it like this gentleman did with the tiger.
0: There's just something that happens in the brain and it's happened to me. It actually happened to me twice in one week down there in 2018, where you have a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere of your brain. And generally speaking, very broadly speaking, like the left deals in the knowns, uh, in cataloged information, again, like explored territory, and the right deals with, the novel, the new, the unknown, unexplored territory. And so very often they're cross-referencing information and it's trying to categorize things against the known. And so it does happen very often that, you know, you see an upright thing at a distance and your brain immediately tells you, oh, that's my teammate. He wasn't supposed to be over there. I don't know why he's over there. What's he doing over there? And then you find out like, oh no, he was 20 yards behind you the whole time and never moved.
2: Anyone that's been in the field for any amount of time has had that happen. You didn't look because it didn't seem like anything. It just seemed like one of your other team members or something explainable, ordinary.
1: Yeah, Bigfooting is essentially a lot of nothing happening, uh, peppered with missed opportunities.
0: And one thing that I know the NAWAC has talked about frequently uh, that has led to numerous sightings down there is that the things do not seem to be very good at keeping track of multiple humans. They seem to keep track of, you know, what they can see visually. Uh, that probably has something to do with, you know, I do think that they are cooperative ambush predators. I've been convinced of that for a long time. I think all the data supports that. It's certainly not novel to me. I, I think probably some of the first people to postulate that would have been, I mean, there's some some suggestions of that in early writings, but of course, Archie publicly talked about that extensively. Jim Hukin, uh, Keith Foster, an excellent researcher out of Colorado. So a lot of people arrived at that same after absorbing the data set but yeah if you if you existed as a cooperative ambush hunter it, it wouldn't you wouldn't benefit from keeping track of every individual in a herd you would just approach a group and then single out a vulnerable individual to stalk or follow the other reason I think that that's so important because I, I do think that they're ambush cooperative ambush predators now again they are omnivores I don't think that they solely eat animal protein but you know you could you could study an animal's physiology or lifestyle, and then figure out easily what's the most important thing to it. Uh, like, for example, animals that have reflective eyes see at night, and they they might operate during the day too, but they're clearly built for the night. They were selected for night vision. Gigantopithecus would be a good example in that. Gigantopithecus has some of the densest jawbone, mandible bone, and the densest tooth enamel in the animal world, and especially in the primate kingdom. But Stable isotope analysis and microware analysis shows us that they had an incredibly diverse diet, very, very diverse diet of C3 plants from the forest floor, the understory, the canopy. So they ate a whole host of things, but they were built to process the most dense, tough, fibrous things. So that that wasn't all they ate, but that was like what what they were selected for. So if you look at the Sasquatch behavioral set, you see that, well, they behave a lot like predators do. In terms of like, I don't think that it would be the simplest explanation to see how furtive they are and how stealthy they are and how good they are at, at avoiding ambush and say that well they're doing that to avoid people because that means that humans were such a strong selection pressure on them, which it, it, it could be possible because it is postulated that that Homo erectus hunted Gigantopithecus, so it's certainly not unprecedented that we hunted other hominoids. But I think the other most parsimonious, the simplest answer to explain all that is like, well, they're just they're ambush predators. They eat a whole host of things, but they're built to do this one thing. This is the one thing that they were most selected for. So again, tigers, they are not stealthy because they're trying to avoid contact with humans. You know, tigers, tigers are obligate carnivores, so they only hunt. And so what they have to do in order to survive is basically intravenously insert themselves into herds. They have to basically be undetectable by animals that group together, and so they're infiltrating dozens of pairs of eyes and dozens of pairs of ears and dozens of pairs of nostrils. So I think a lot of those correlatives that you see between, let's say, tiger behavior and Sasquatch behavior are indicative of that. And so I do think that that can be exploited.
1: That's an interesting yeah. observation. I don't think I've ever heard brought up before. I mean, the ambush, ambush predator thing. Yeah, that's been written about. Um, again, when you said that, the first thing I thought of was Archie Buckley's or George Haas's writing about you know from the Bay Area group back in seventy one or seventy two or whatever that was. Mm-hmm. And honestly, we haven't really progressed that much further since then about what we know about these things. But um, but uh, looking back on my own experiences and uh, those of my friends, uh, Bobos included, uh, a lot of the sightings have happened. Um, or of close and almost sightings, shall we say, have happened when there's been more than one group. Um, the, the Ohio expedition, um, for finding Bigfoot came to mind because Matt and I were up on top of the hill and Bobo and Renee were down on the trail with a bunch of boys or, uh, little league, uh, little league team, you know, bunch of little boys basically making a bunch of noise. And even after that, when Bobo had his close sighting, um, when we were filming interviews and all that sort of stuff, um, you know, Bobo was off alone coming back from an interview. And everybody else was at camp, you know, you know, cleaning up and doing TV production after the shoot stuff, you know? So again, uh, uh, a bunch of humans dispersed and I guess the Sasquatch just lost track, I guess. So that's an interesting uh, observation, which might yield some very interesting techniques in order to try to get closer to one of these things.
0: Yeah. The NAWAC talked pretty extensively about their experiences in that regard. Probably, Cause you know, I, I, joined the group in late uh, 2016. And so they had been involved for quite a long time before uh, I was a member. And so uh, there was a podcast episode in particular from Brian Brown's old Bigfoot show that we actually just re-released through the NAWC podcast called Apes Among Us that details some of those experiences. But yeah, it does seem to be the case that you know if there's a, a group of people in the area and they split up, if there's one of these things around, that they, certain people might get followed and that uh, that might afford an opportunity for other people to observe it because it's not necessarily keeping track of where everyone is in the environment. And again, I just think, I don't think they're stalking humans to hunt them. Uh, I would just say, like, you look at this set of behaviors, what's consistent across, you know, Sasquatch behaviors, you you could chalk that up to, like, they're very similar to the behaviors of a stalking ambush predator, and they just so happen to also apply to the occasional human intruder. I'm not saying for the purposes of feeding. I don't think they're stalking, and killing, eating people, but in terms of keeping tab on people, watching people, anticipating people. And again, you have to realize too, if, if they're hardwired to orchestrate an ambush, because I think they do that using certain terrain features and in certain types of terrain, then you'd have to also accept like, well, they're probably hardwired to anticipate and avoid an ambush. And essentially what people have done for a very long time in terms of trying to get photos or video is to ambush them. It just doesn't work. Whereas, you, you know, you look at the host of sightings and to a certain degree, you know, people being pursued, being followed, being stalked, leads to visuals more so than, you know, if, if someone takes a tactical advantage in the tactical ground and hopes that the thing will walk out in the open in the vulnerable position, it's probably never going to happen because uh, they just don't seem to operate that way. So I do think all those speak to the fact that that's what they're built to do. I mean, they didn't, you think about something that size and with that much strength and power that's that furtive and that's that active at night. You know, they're not strictly nocturnal, but they're, they can clearly see at night based on people's experiences. And, you know, God knows how many reports exist indicating they have reflective eyes. So they're built for the night like they didn't. They weren't selected for all that because they're the best berry pickers or the best, you know, nut gatherers in nature. I mean, we're talking about the the selection pressures that built that thing probably have a lot to do with uh, ambush hunting and opportunistic predatory behaviors. Good points. Yeah. You know what? I
1: mean, again, all of this really goes towards one of my basic premises here uh, uh, with having you on is like you're one of the smartest guys in Bigfoot. You know, hands down. Uh, you don't have to be a scientist to think in a scientific manner. Um, you don't have to uh, have attended a bunch of college in order to be well-read. And then I think you're proof in the pudding for all that sort of stuff because you are one of the smartest guys in Bigfoot. Um, and, and what does that really take? It takes a love for the subject. It takes boots on the ground out in the woods, and it takes uh, a good library. Um, You aren't going to learn this stuff by watching YouTube. You aren't going to learn this stuff by going on Facebook boards and bitching about other people's stuff. You're going to learn this stuff just by reading books and then seeing how those books fit into real field practice. And uh, you certainly put more than your fair share of time in on that one.
2: In the last few years, what's something that you've learned about Sasquatch behavior? Here's the funny thing about that is that there are things that should have been
0: totally obvious to me. Again, like you, you organize your thinking based on your, your values, you know, you give something a value and that's all you see, right? I mean, like when you go into a bookstore and you're looking for a book, how many books do you not see, (laughs) you know, you're walking past thousands or tens of thousands of books. Uh, It's not like you could walk out of there and say, oh yeah, well I could name off, the, you know, the 10 on either side of the one I was looking for. You just don't see that. So I was looking specifically for a certain kind of thing. So for years I was trying to get footage and I thought that the best kind of footage to get would be thermal imaging footage because the things seem to be active at night and they seem to make closer approaches to humans at night. And so I was entirely focused on this nighttime thing. And I'm talking about for like a decade. All I did was if I would go out in the day and I might scout a trail during the daytime in order to see where I was going to return at night. And i would be out at night with a thermal imager. And so it was just entirely nighttime focus. Now, obviously I had read hundreds and hundreds, and I'd interviewed hundreds of witnesses who had seen him in the day, but once I got very familiar with the NAWAC's work and their collective experiences and what they had documented, you know, I, I had a conversation with Daryl and and he was like, well, do you ever just go out the day and, and just use like hunting techniques? And I was like, no, you know, I go out at night and blah, blah. And he was like, well, you know, that works. You should try it. And then I could revisit the information and think, okay, well, if you're talking about duration, for example, like the vast, as you guys know this, so I'm more speaking to the audience than to you, but uh, the vast majority of sightings are from motorists, you know? So if you put a camera in every car that had a a Sasquatch cross in front of it, you'd have a library of like hundreds or thousands of clips of footage that would all be like one or two seconds long, you know? The most extended sightings, the majority of those come from hunters. And they are people very often who are wearing camo and they're they're stationary and they're using scent cover and they've gotten into position and they're watching an open area, or not an open area, but they're watching a lane and they have a sighting. And usually it's extended. And you can read, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those reports in John Green's database, you know, collected by the luminaries that are collected by, you know, other online publishing houses like the BFRO, et cetera. So it's like, well, yeah, that was always there that like conventional hunting techniques seem to trick those things. Otherwise, why are all these hunters having extended daylight sightings of them? So that was kind of like it hit me like a brick in the head that, oh man, I should have been doing this a lot more. I might have had a sighting by this point in my life if I had put more emphasis on trying to see one or trying to document one during the day. And if I had learned more lessons from those types of sightings, like, well, what was the person doing that contributed to their ability to observe the thing? And you read through those and like most of them, thing didn't seem to know the person was there.